Thank you for that amazing worship. I can see why they've had you back 17 years, Dom. That was awesome. Hey, it's great to be with you here at Hume. Actually, to be honest, it's just good to be with a group of men anywhere coming out of COVID. Can I get an amen? I'm a... I'm up here with my son, Shane, is nine years old, and we're going to shoot some 22s tomorrow if they let us climb trees, hang out. We're going to hang through the whole weekend, but his older brother is a high school senior, and uh, I travel and speak a good amount, but his senior year, I've cleared my schedule. I don't want to miss a single basketball game. So his senior year, he knows his dad, who's busy, is present at every game, and I can say that, and he has a game in Vegas tomorrow, so we're going to leave early Saturday morning or late tomorrow night and head there. I kind of thought, I can't really be at a men's retreat talking about being a good dad and not going to be with my son, so I'll be doing that, but we will be uh, enjoying uh, the time that we're here with you as well. In fact, if you can't enjoy it up here, that's on you, <laughs> right? What a beautiful place. Hey, I do get a chance to speak and travel quite a bit, and I'll never forget, I was speaking at a conference probably about a year before COVID, and I was asked to speak on the topic of pornography. And a young man came up to me afterwards, if I remember, he was about 20, 21 years old. And I remember the conversation well, because he came up to me and he started talking, and he goes, I really appreciate you talking, but this doesn't apply to me. And I said, well, why not? He says, you don't understand. I've made choices where I've gone way too far. And I said, what are you talking about? God's grace applies to you. He goes, Sean, I'm a leader in my youth group. And if these high school students that follow after me knew what I had done, they, it would crush their image of me and it would affect their relationship with God. I said, man, I am so sorry that you feel that way because God forgives you and restores. That's the kind of God that we follow. And as we started to have this conversation and I probed him, his dad's a pastor. And I said, hey, I'm curious. Since your dad's a pastor and he preaches and presumably would talk about issues of sexuality, did your dad ever talk to you about sex? He goes, Sean, my father never talked to me about this. Can you imagine that? No, I can't because I grew up in a home where my dad was talking early and often about it. But many of you are like, yeah, I can relate it. My dad didn't talk with me either. It's pretty obvious that we live in a world, especially because of smartphones, what is available just one click away for this generation is defining how they see the world sexually in an absolutely broken and devastating fashion. You know what the reality is? Kids don't primarily take their cues from Netflix, from TikTok, from the educational system, and all of those and more are given a non-biblical, broken view about sex, love, and relationships. You know the number one factor that affects a young person? I just talked to an expert yesterday who had a huge study on this. He said from the 1970s, it's been the same. It's parents. And of the parents, the dad statistically plays a powerful and a significant role. Friends, if we don't talk to this next generation about sex, love, and relationships, you know what? Our culture will. 
And I see brokenness, and I know you see brokenness too. So you're probably thinking, wow, we are jumping in on a Friday night talking about sex. Are you serious? I am dead serious. And my nine-year-old son is sitting here, and he's going to hear this talk too. You know, sometimes these talks actually don't go well, do they? My, some of our good friends were talking with our kid who's six about sex, and they were trying to teach him anatomically correct terms. And their six-year-old son stops him. He goes, Mom and Dad, I know this. So like, really? He goes, yeah. Boys have a penis, and girls have an agenda. <laughs> Amen. I knew there's at least one Baptist here. I was like, that kid is wise beyond his years, right? Now, I do know for many of you, the moment we start to talk about this, very quickly to the service can bub bubble up regret. I wish I had heard this. I wish I had done that. In fact, I've met some of you before and some of you I don't know. There's probably some of you sitting here right now in serious sexual sin. And here's my message as we start. My message is that freedom is only found in Jesus Christ. Amen. Only found in Jesus Christ. One of my favorite stories is Luke 15. The story of the father with two sons. The younger son, the prodigal son, goes out and just lives wild. And you know, we miss this in our culture. But when he says to the father, he says, give me what is my due. You know what he was saying to his dad? Exactly. He was saying, you are dead to me. In an honor-shame society, that was basically the worst thing he could say to his father. You're dead to me. And he left. But I think if you read the story closely, you know the image I get of this father? I think this father stood at the curtains every day and opened up and looked out before anybody else did. You know what he thought? He thought, maybe today is the day my son will come home. That's the heart of the father for you. And that's the heart of the father for me. And friends, if we are not willing to experience that in our own life and to talk with this next generation about it, I'm telling you the lies of Satan are gonna step in and fill the void. Now, where do we start on a talk like this? Recently, I had a chance to speak in a group of, of high school students in a classroom. There's about 12 students. These are juniors and seniors in high school at a Christian school. So I went up to the board and I asked them a simple question. I said, can you give me a definition of freedom? I don't mean political freedom. I said, what does it mean to be a person who's truly free? They talked amongst themselves and they gave me back the definition that I almost always hear from Christian groups. The answer is freedom is doing whatever you want without restraint. So if you're free, you do anything you set your heart on and nobody stops you from doing it. That's what it means to be free. I said, okay. Can you paint a picture of what it likes for some what, what it looks like for someone to live this life of freedom? 
Students talked amongst themselves. They came back and they said, well, a person alone on an island that could do anything they want to do and nobody would stop them. I said, that's an interesting perception of freedom. I said, let me ask you one more question. If God exists and is real, should that in any way shape the way we think about what it means to be free? They talked amongst themselves. They came back. You know what they said? They said, if God exists, freedom is doing whatever you want without restraint, but now there's consequences. Can you imagine that? All their understanding of God adds to what it means to be free is consequences. Can you see why this generation in a Christian school who thinks that all God wants to do is give them consequences doesn't find the Christian life very compelling? (laughs) Well, over the next hour then, I started to unpack that they understood a part of freedom, but not all of freedom. See, there's a negative component to freedom and there's a positive component to freedom. Part of freedom is not being restrained. If you're in jail, your freedom is limited. So there's a part of freedom where we're not restrained, but that's only half. There's also positive freedom. There's not only freedom from, which is negative, there's freedom for, which is positive. So take my smartphone, for example. This was designed for a purpose, wasn't it? You know what it's for by looking at what it was made for or asking the maker. It's not a scuba tank, it's not a waffle maker, it's not a football. You can't snowboard on it, right? We actually have to understand what it's for and then use it accordingly and what happens, then it's set free. See, part of freedom is lack and restraint, but the other part of freedom is understanding what is something made for and then using it accordingly. That's what it means to be free. Now, what amazes me about this is, have you ever realized the first thing scripture tells us about God? The Bible doesn't first tell us God is holy. It doesn't start by telling us God is righteous or just or loving. What's the first line of the Bible? In the beginning, God. Okay, this is the participatory part of the program. In the beginning, God (laughs) created. Some of you just can't stop thinking about those little pizza pieces in 65 seconds, right? And you're like, I could have done that. No, you couldn't. Neither could I. I don't want to try anymore. First thing we learn about God in the Bible is God is a creator. So we're told in the beginning, God created. There's a creation of language, a creation of uh, nations, creation of marriage, and a creation of sex. It's when we know what something is for and live accordingly that we're set free. That's why there is no freedom without truth. You can't have freedom without truth. I'm convinced with this generation, one of the biggest lies they're tempted to believe is about freedom. That freedom is doing whatever you want to do. Live your truth. Be true to yourself, to each his own, right? Isn't that what we hear? Oh, that may be your truth, but it's not my truth. As if freedom is living according to whatever feels good to you. Friends, that is not freedom. That is not freedom. Freedom is understanding what something is made for and then living according to its design. So at least there's one Baptist here. Thank you. (laughs) Now, freedom is knowing what we're designed for truth and living accordingly. 
So that raises an interesting question. What are we designed for? I think the Bible makes it really clear. Jesus was asked what's the greatest commandment. What did he say? Love God and love other people. In other words, you and I are made for relationships. We are made for relationships vertically with God and horizontally with others. And when relationships aren't present, we hurt and we suffer. Isn't that one thing we learned from COVID? (laughs) I mean, thank God for technology that I could Zoom in my class, but staring at a screen is not the same as being present with another person. It's not. In fact, in prison, where's the worst place to be in prison? Solitary confinement when you're alone. You know, hell is described as darkness, which means aloneness. Heaven is described as a city because there's people and a banquet because there's fellowship. I said to these students, I said, ironically, if I'm right, that means the least free person on the planet is the person alone on an island because they're lacking the very relationships that they were designed to experience. (laughs) Friends, freedom is only found in relationship. That's what we're made for. So I pushed back the students. I said, by the way, freedom's not doing whatever you want. Is freedom really doing whatever you want? I said to these students, I said, what if a dad comes home from work and he decides, you know what? I don't want to play with my kids. I don't want to talk to my wife. I want to go to my den and look at porn for a couple hours because that makes me feel better. That's what I want. If the father does that, is he free? No, he's enslaved. Freedom's not doing what you want because sometimes we can have the wrong wants. Freedom involves cultivating the right wants. You see, freedom's not doing whatever we want. But the second part, they said, freedom's do whatever you want without restraint. I said, actually, I think freedom comes through restraint. I mean, imagine, we got a keyboard up here. Imagine we take person A and person B. Person A goes, you know what, I can walk over this keyboard and I can pick up you know, a stick or something, I can bash it and I can wreck it, that would be fun. I could put on TikTok and it would go viral. Person A, person B goes, oh, wait a minute, I understand the purpose of a keyboard. And I've cultivated the discipline to know how to play it and sits down and plays beautiful worship music or Bach or Mozart or Beethoven. Who is more free? The one without restraint or the one with restraint? Friends, this generation of young people has a faulty view of freedom. They have a faulty view of identity. They have a faulty view of God's character. No wonder so many of them are so broken sexually (laughs) and don't find the Christian life compelling. You see, freedom's not do whatever you want. Freedom is actually having the capacity to do what is right. Freedom is when we orient our lives to God's design. That's freedom. That's freedom. So that raises an interesting question. If we're talking about sexuality, 
And we say freedom is only found in following God's design and purpose. And that raises the question, what is God's design and purpose for sex? Well, I'm glad you asked. We're going to look at, I think there's three purposes for sex. And I think most Protestants mess up the third. We'll start with the first one that's really obvious in Genesis 1, 27 and 28. What does it say? God makes them male and female, says multiply, fill the earth. That one was obvious. That one was free. The first purpose for sex is to make babies what we call procreation. Obvious, right? Now, by the way, what's interesting is when you read that passage carefully, is it's a blessing and it's actually a command. I've taught high school over 20 years at Biola, almost a decade, and I've heard complaints about a lot of God's commands. I have never heard a complaint about that one. (laughs) Not once, and I've heard it all. First purpose of sex, make babies procreation. That's obvious. But the second one is in Genesis chapter 2. It says, a man shall leave his father and his mother and bond or cling to his wife and the two shall become one. In other words, the second purpose of sex is for unity, to bond two people together. Now, when I was a kid, when I would hear this, I was like, oh, that's nice when you're married, I'm sure there's a bond that's there. And then as I studied this in more depth, I started to realize when you get married, there's a financial oneness, there's an emotional oneness, there's a relational oneness, but there's also a biochemical oneness. Did you realize this? In men and women, there's a chemical called oxytocin, but it's particularly strong in women. And it's actually been called the love hormone or the bonding hormone. In other words, when this chemical is released, primarily in a woman's body, it creates a feeling of trust and intimacy and closeness. Now, what scientists say is it's released three primary times. Number one, when a woman gives birth, which is painful. So they tell me. When my wife gave birth, I I thought my job was like to make her laugh. Oh, man. (laughs) I learned that one fast. I was like, I am such a rookie. Just shut up and do whatever she says. This will go much better. Well, when a woman is given birth... Her body's being flooded with oxytocin. So when the child is born, they'll often put the child right here on her chest because there's this motherly connection. It's been inside of her body for nine months. The same time is when a woman nurses. When a woman nurses, there's this bodily connection and oneness with this human being. And her body's being flooded with oxytocin. You know what the third time is? It's during sexual or romantic touch. In fact, studies even show without touch, if you just look into somebody's eyes lovingly and longingly, you can have this sense of oxytocin that's released that creates a bond. Isn't that powerful and beautiful how God has put the human body together? So you read in Genesis, it's like the two become one. I'm like, oh, that's a nice spiritual idea. And then you realize, oh my goodness, this is a biochemical unity. But this also shows why pornography is so destructive because it damages the bonding hormone between people. This is partly why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, he's like, do not sleep with a prostitute because you are giving your body and becoming one flesh with someone you are not meant to give that part of yourself to. But we go back to Genesis, 
purpose of sex, make babies. The second one is unity, to bond two people together. The third one I think people miss. Are you ready for this? There's a decent chance you haven't heard this. The third reason I think God gives us sex is to foreshadow heaven. Now let me just stop and be very clear what I don't mean. I might never get invited back. I don't mean in certain religions, if you die in a jihad, you get 70 dark-haired, dark-eyed virgins in heaven. That is not what I mean. Have I been super clear about that? Someone's always going to tweet and say, McDowell said this, then I get canceled. Always happens. Not that bad, but there's always one out there. That's not what I mean. I mean something different. You know, if you go to like the King James translation of the Bible, It'll say, Adam knew his wife Eve. Abraham knew his wife Sarah. As a kid, I was like, of course he knew her. They were married. Like, why are they telling us this? Because I didn't get it. But the, rather than just describing sex, they had sex as a physical act. You see, in our Western culture, we tend to reduce sex down just to physical. It's a reductionistic View. In the Old Testament, the Hebrew term was yada, which was a kind of relational knowing of somebody. You see, from the beginning, God intended that sex would be a way of knowing somebody intimately. Now, I'm not saying sex is always intimate. You can have sex with someone and not be intimate. You can be intimate with somebody without having sex. But God's design is that sex would be a kind of intimacy between a man and a woman. You see, what happened when Adam and Eve sinned? They were shameful, and they covered themselves up. Because of shame, we hide who we are, don't we? I don't just mean clothes. We hide our personality. We are tempted to put on a front. Because deep down inside, many of us fear that if I really let you know my insecurities and my hurt and my brokenness, you might not accept me. You might reject me. And so we put on a front and we hide. We're all Adam and Eve when it's said and done. But what happens in the act of sex is it's meant to be you take clothes off, you reveal who you are to somebody, and you're loved and able to love in an intimate fashion amidst your weaknesses. That's what sex is meant to be, and that's what foreshadows heaven. Because in heaven, it's God who knows you, and he knows me best and still loves us. Isn't that the deepest yearning that we have when it's all said and done? I mean, I asked my high school students this week and my kids, I asked my kids a ton of questions. I said, would you rather be rich but have broken relationships or struggle financially but have rich relationships? And all of them said, relationships make life Friends, that's God's design for sex. Make babies unity, but second, to foreshadow heaven where we can truly know one another without wearing a mask or barriers to know and be known. You know why this matters? Because if Satan can twist our view of sex, he can twist our view of heaven.
True freedom is found in living according to God's design. Now, the moment I talk to students, they think, but well, why is God's design so strict? Like, why can't a man and a man marry? Or why can't a couple, if they're not just happy, get a divorce? And honestly, sometimes I look at God's commands, I'm like, I don't know that I fully get that. Like, why? I want an explanation. Yes, I was that kid growing up. I was like, why, why? I wanted to know. Hence, I'm a professor. It's part of my job. Why? Well, let's go back again to the garden. Have you ever wondered why God gave the particular first command that he gave? I mean, honestly, why the command not to eat the fruit? I mean, why didn't God just say, Adam, don't murder Eve? That's it. And you might be thinking, what about Cain and Abel? That was sibling rivalry, and Eve was the only other human being for a while. Wouldn't that have been easier? Adam just don't murder her. He's like, shh, got this, check, and then we could have been fine. Why did God say not to eat fruit? And by the way, what is fruit meant to be used as? Food. It's meant to be eaten. And God puts it in the middle of the garden. And if you actually read Genesis 3 closely, it's like it looked good and it felt good and appealed to the senses. It's like Genesis wants to make us really understand this was a real temptation. So in some ways, if we're honest, doesn't it feel like God is setting them up for failure? I mean, he could have given them a simple, obvious, intuitive command. For some reason, not long ago, it hit me why God did this. You know why? Because if the infinite is going to be in relationship with the finite, if the creator is going to be in relationship with the created, if the eternal is going to be in relationship with the temporal, there's gonna have to be a moment where we don't understand and things don't make sense, and yet we choose to trust God anyways. It's about trust. God is saying, this whole garden is yours. You might not understand why I'm telling you not to eat this fruit, but I do. The question is, will you trust me that I'm good? And I'm telling you, this is what it all boils down to for you, and it boils down to me. Do we really, in our heart of hearts, believe that God is good? Do we? Amen. Thank you, brother. That's the question. Because you know what's interesting? I, I teach apologetics. So sometimes I wonder, I'm like, why didn't Satan try to convince Adam and Eve that God wasn't real? Notice he doesn't show up and say, you were dreaming, God doesn't exist. He doesn't question the existence of God, he questions the goodness of God. God is keeping something from you. God is a cosmic killjoy. That is the exact same voice we hear today, isn't it? Man, that's an antiquated book 2,000 plus years ago. That has no relevance for your life today. That's a bunch of rules trying to restrain your fun and keeping you from being free. And God is saying, no, it's actually in my commands, if you will trust me, that will set you free. That's the question. That's why the scripture says, not only does God do good, but Psalm 105 says God is good. He is good. God is good. 
and his commands flow from his good character. That's why in Psalm 19, David says he rejoices in the law of the Lord. So in Deuteronomy chapter 10, Moses says, what does God require of you but to love the Lord God with your heart, your soul, and your mind, and strength, and follow his commandments, which are given for your good. Some of you might recognize the name Josh McDowell. My father is 82 years old. He's written over 150 books and spoken, I believe, at over 1,200 universities. Lived a pretty remarkable life just following the Lord. I honestly look at my dad as like a modern day Paul. He's my hero. I love my dad. And one of the best lessons my dad gave me that I hope I'm passing on to my kids is that God's commands are not negative. God's commands are for our flourishing and to protect us and to provide for us. We've got a generation of young people who think God is just restraining and keeping them from all the fun and it's up to you and me to say, no, God's commands are good. God's commands will set you free if you follow them and if you trust them. Now, it's one thing to point to scripture, but one thing I try to do, especially with young people, is I try to show something that's scripturally true, translate it to what they think is real life and make a connection so they get it. Now, ideally, we shouldn't have to do that. If the Bible says it, that does settle it, and I do believe it. But sometimes we've got to work a little harder to make this sink in. So I was trying to make this point with a group of high school students, and I, and I went to the board. I said, okay, I want you to understand that God's commands are for our good. And I, said, I wrote down, I said, what would happen if everybody actually lived out God's design for sex and marriage? Would the world be better would it be the same or would it be worse? Have you ever actually thought about that? What would the world be like if everybody embraced and lived the sexual ethic of Jesus? Isn't that an interesting question? Now, before we go any further, we have to actually define what we mean by the sexual ethic of Jesus. I think very simply, Jesus said there's two equal, equally God-honoring ways to live in relationship. One is singleness. And second is marriage. Both are equally God-honoring ways to live in relationship. But marriage is one man, one woman, one flesh, one lifetime. That's how scripture defines marriage. So the sexual ethic of Jesus, one God-honoring way is singleness. And if you're single, to not be sexually immoral at all. If you're married, your sexuality is expressed with your spouse of the opposite sex who you become one flesh of for one lifetime. So I asked these students, and I went to the board, I said, what would the world be like if people actually lived the sexual ethic of Jesus? And slowly, one student said, well, I guess there'd be no divorce. I said, you're right. Another student said, I guess there'd be no sex abuse. I said, you're right. Another student said there'd be no crude sexual humor. I said, you're right. Another student said there'd be no sexually transmitted diseases. I said, you're right. Another student said there'd be no abortion. And I said, you're right. Another student said 
there'd be no dads leaving their older wives for a younger trophy wife. I said, you're right, now you tell me, is a world without crude sexual humor, sexual abuse, abortion, sexually transmitted, transmitted diseases, and deadbeat dads better or worse? And they understood exactly that the commands of Jesus are to set us free. Yet the reality is, men, <laughs> our kids, our grandkids, the kids in our church and our neighborhood, they're getting non-stop messages that fly in the face of God's design for sex. Coming through Netflix, TikTok, Instagram, our educational system in California absolutely teaches a message that contradicts a biblical view of sexuality. The question is, are you and I, amidst our brokenness, amidst our failures, first gonna seek healing and forgiveness from the Lord and just have the courage to talk to this generation? Because just talking to this generation is a win. <laughs> just opening up the door, sharing your story, sharing your brokenness. Opening up is a win with this generation that's hungry. Now my recent book I wrote called Chasing Love and I walked through all these myths that are just filling through our generation about sexuality. You know what one of the big, big myths is? Is that sex is not a big deal. I remember years ago, I was reading about this sexual revolutionary from the 70s. And kind of when the sexual revolution 60s and 70s hit, the idea was to say sex is not sacred, it doesn't mean a lot, it's just another biological function. In fact, I remember hearing this activist say sex is really no different than drinking a glass of water. Now, I don't know what water this guy's drinking. <laughs> but you understand the claim, right? It doesn't mean anything, it's just a biological function. Stop conservatives and Christians making a big deal about it. When I hear somebody trying to say something like sex isn't a big deal, and I know that it is, I look for signs that this person actually knows the truth and the truth seeps out. So think of like a beach ball. If you take a beach ball and you push it underwater, what's gonna happen? It's gonna pop up because of reality. When somebody says sex isn't a big deal, I know even they don't really believe that and at some point it's gonna pop up. So this movie came out five years ago called Passengers. I didn't actually see it, but I read about it. It had Jennifer Lawrence and Chris Pratt in it. And the story is they're in some spaceship flying 90 years into the future, and they like cryogenically put everybody to sleep for 90 years, and it just happens, seeming by coincidence, in the middle of the trip, Chris Pratt and Jennifer Lawrence wake up together at the same time. Well, as you can imagine, it starts to move towards a sex scene, and there's a sex scene in the film. Well, I'm reading about this, and then I saw this ad on USA Today, not an ad, kind of a story on USA Today, Chris Pratt interviewed about the movie. I thought, well, this is interesting. I'll click on this. And he's being interviewed, one of these entertainment weekly kind of stories. And they asked him, they're like, hey, Chris, how do you care for your partner on a scene where there's kind of like a sex scene? And you could tell Chris Pratt, Mr. Cool, was like trying to answer quickly and change the subject. 
And I remember he goes something effective like, you know, if you, I just ask my partner if she's okay and try to minimize the number of people on the scene. I thought, huh, if sex is not a big deal, why did they ask him about that scene? Why didn't they ask him and say, Chris, what was it like when you sat down with Jennifer Lawrence and you had a glass of water? <laughs> because we know having a glass of water is not the same as having sex. It's obvious. So then the professor and researcher in me is like, I'm gonna do a little bit more research. I found an article by Jennifer Lawrence and at that time in 2016, so probably filmed in 2015, this was the first scene of its kind that she had done. You know what was interesting? Is she got herself drunk for filming one scene in the movie. Guess what it wasn't when they had a glass of water. But then, and I document this in my, in my book, I could send you the article. She said the night before filming that scene, she called her mom and said, Mom, I've never felt so vulnerable in my life. Can you just tell me that everything is gonna be okay? Don't tell me that sex doesn't mean anything. We know it does. Now the other mistake, one mistake is to say it means nothing. The other mistake is to say it means everything. <laughs> Friends, Jesus was single. Paul was single. My single friends tell me, they're like, Sean, we can live without sex, but we can't live without intimacy and real relationships because that's what we're designed for. If I may, let me leave you with three stories. You're thinking, okay, all right, true freedom is living according to God's design for sex. God forgives us from our past. Here's the three purposes for sex. Here's the myth. What do I do with this? Three stories that might illustrate practical ways you can do this. My son is 17 years old, my oldest, when he was 14 and a half, this movie, Bohemian Rhapsody, came out about the rock band. Oh, now you participate, because it's about Queen. I get it. I get it. <laughs> it's about the rock band Queen. And he came to his PG-13. He goes, Dad, will you take me to see this? He's 14 and a half. Movie's PG-13. I knew it was going to have some objectionable ideas in it, but I thought, you know what? Son, here's what I'll do. I said, I'll take you and a friend whose parents are cool with this. We'll go to the movie. If when we're done, here's all I ask. I'll pay for everything. Is that we come back and just sit down at the dinner table. I just want to talk to you about it and hear what you think. He goes, sure. So took him and a friend, bought him popcorn and went to the movies. $120 later. <laughs> we're driving home and we walk inside. My, dad, my son goes, okay, dad, let's talk about it. We sat down. For 30 minutes, I didn't lecture him. I said, hey, buddy, did you like the film? Yeah, what was your favorite scene? He goes this. I said, as Christians, is there anything in this movie we found redemptive that we can celebrate? I said, as Christians, is there anything that should give us pause? I said, were there ever moments where you felt preached at, where they were pushing an idea about sexuality different from what Jesus taught and we just talked about it? In the context of a relationship, we just talked about sex. My daughter is 14 now. She's a freshman, so I have a senior, a freshman. And then my son in third grade, who's hanging out with dad this weekend, is nine. And uh, my daughter, you know, because she's 14, I'm like always looking for ways to spend time with her and just talk with her. And kids are different. 
So I was finishing up this book called Chasing Love, and I thought, you know what? I bet I could manipulate might be strong. I bet I could talk my daughter into reading this if I offer her a pair of new shoes. So I went to her, I was like, hey, Shauna, I got a deal for you. You know, your dad wrote this book. I could really use the feedback of a teenager, right? Milking it. I said, would you be willing to read it? And then if you just go out to coffee with me and we talk about it for an hour, hour and a half, I'll go buy you a pair of shoes. She looks at me, she goes, there's an outlet down the street where you can get two for the price of one. Is that okay? I said, you can get three for the price of one. She goes, okay. Read the whole book. Took my daughter at the time. I think she was 13. Now she's 14. We went out. We sat down at the local coffee shop. You know, five bucks on a coffee and donut. Actually, it was Starbucks. Eight bucks. And we just talked about God's design for sex and dating and how far is too far. Friends, it's relationships and it's conversations. My son here, who's nine, he'll remember this. We were driving home about six months ago and my daughter was sharing what she learned in class and she mentioned abortion. And you remember this? Shane goes, dad, what's abortion? I'm thinking, okay, how do I explain to my then eight-year-old son what abortion is? Now, a lot of people would say, hey, don't ask. It's not a big deal, or they'd favor, they'd push it away. When I hear that, I'm thinking this is an opportunity. But I'm also thinking, I've got to explain this in a way where I give him enough information, but not too much. My wife errs on the side of giving too little. I probably err on the side of giving too much. There's a good balance in the middle, typically more towards my wife's side, if I'm going to be totally honest. And so as best I remember, I, I said, well, Sometimes women are pregnant and they decide they don't want to keep the baby. He goes, well, dad, why would a woman decide that? I said, well, there's a lot of reasons. I said, many women actually really don't want to have an abortion. They feel like it's their only option. They feel like they're trapped. So we should have compassion for a woman who does this. He goes, he's like, how do they do an abortion? Now I'm thinking, okay, I've got to really explain this one well, but this was a conversation with my son. I've studied passing on the faith to the next generation for years. You know what we see with kids, with grandkids, with nephews, with young people in the church? It's most through relationships. It's spending time. It's being together. It's being willing to listen and being willing to have conversations. You're in for some great talks this week. I'm gonna miss being up at Hume, but I'm also like, man, Eric Tonis is coming after me. I love to hear this guy. You're in for such a treat. Three talks for him about being a, a man today and what that entails. My prayer is while you're up here and you're away from things, you can have some time to think, some time to pray. But in particular, maybe God would put on your heart a young person, a son or a daughter, a grandkid, young person in your community that you could just have a conversation with about God's good and beautiful design for sexuality. And you know what? God could use you and me in that conversation to change the trajectory of a young person's life. Amen? Amen. Father, we are so grateful to be in such a beautiful place. I just pray this weekend as we talk about and do some fun things, but also maybe 
talk about some heavy things, that you would just be present. Help us to love one another. Help us through worship and in nature and relationships just to know and experience your grace and love and forgiveness. God, if there are burdens of some of the men here just about family and those at home, just I pray you just give sense of peace amidst this, that you are good and you are in control. And we commit this time to you, and in Jesus' name, amen.